Today we're going to complete our study of the conquest period. Now you recall that in every one of these periods we study six things, don't we? Six things under every period. Makes it easy for memorization. Number one is scripture. Number two is theme. Number three are dates. Number four is the geography. Number five are the events. And number six are the persons. In every one of these 11 events or 11 periods, we study these six things, the scripture and the theme and the dates and the geography and the events and the person. Now, last time we took up the first five, at least the first four and part of the first of the fifth one, on the conquest period. Number one, the scripture. What's the scripture for the conquest period? Uh, obviously, the book of Joshua. That covers it, the book of Joshua. Number two, what's the theme in one word of the conquest period? Possession, possession, possession. And there are three major terms that expand possession. Number one, invasion. Number two, conquest. And number three, division. And we're going to look at those, uh, we're going to look at those when we come to them. So there are, the key word is possession. And the key verse is found in, jo in Joshua chapter 1. Uh, all the land was promised to Israel. All the land was not conquered during the period of Joshua. Only the strategic areas of the land. And it was never all possessed permanently. God promised to give the land to Israel from the river Egypt. That's way down to the Nile River all the way to the great river, U river Euphrates. God promised that. He pledged that in the Abrahamic covenant, that all that land was never permanently possessed. I believe it will be permanently possessed by the nation Israel when God returns the nation to that land. But it was never permanently possessed as God promised it in Genesis chapter 12 and 13 and 15, and especially Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 and 8. Number three, the dates. How long did the conquest period take? Well, we suppose about 30 years. How do we get that? <clears throat> well, we, Caleb was 80 years old when he, uh, he went into Canaan. Katie, uh, Caleb was 80 years old when he went into Canaan. We suppose that Joshua was about the same age, 80 years old. Joshua died at 110, so 80 from 110 gives us 30 years. Now they uh, exited from Egypt in 1446 B.C. They were 40 years in the wilderness. That's 1406 B.C. And then uh, if, if Joshua was 80, when they crossed the Jordan, and he was 110 when he died, that brings us from 1406 down to 13, what? 76 B.C. So the period of the conquest, including the conquest and the division of the land and the settlement of the tribes, took about 30 years. Now, the conquest itself in three campaigns only took seven years. Only seven years, Joshua, one through 12. But the division of the land and the final charges of Joshua took another 
20, 22, 23 years. So from the time they entered the land of Canaan until the time that Joshua died, from Joshua 21 to Joshua 24, I suppose covers about 30 years. Now, give or take 10 years there. Anywhere from 20 to 30 years. And that's based on the assumption that Joshua, Caleb were about the same age. All right, the geography. There are four major areas, uh, and we'll see this later on in the geography of Palestine, especially when we get in the kingdom period. There is east of Jordan what's called Transjordan. There's east of Jordan that area of land called Transjordan. In the New Testament, it's called Perea, which means beyond, east of Jordan, Transjordan. Now, before Moses died, two and a half tribes, came to Joshua, uh, Moses and asked Moses to give them the land east of the Jordan, Transjordan. Those two tribes are Reuben, Gad, one half the tribe of Manasseh. So before Moses died, before Moses died, Reuben, Gad, one half the tribe of Manasseh already had the land allotted to them. The only condition they, uh, Moses made was that when we go across the Jordan and invade the land, your soldiers, your military men, must go with us across the Jordan and must help us conquer the land. When that's over, then we'll send you back home. And that's what Joshua did in Joshua chapter 22. When the conquest and division was all over, then Joshua sent the two and a half tribes back across the Jordan River, the eastern part of Canaan, to what's called Transjordan. That's the geography. Now the events. There are five major events. Five major events. In the book of Joshua, I have three of them up there, and I have two of them on the other side. Five major events. The first one is, uh, well, what is it up there? Preparation. I have a hard time getting pens to work. All right, the first one is preparation. And that's the call of Joshua, the call and commission of Joshua, and that's chapter 1. Then what's the second event up there? All right, they cross the Jordan River, and they establish headquarters at Gilgal. Gilgal. That's this little place right down here, that's right across from the Jordan River. And they crossed it right about this point, about five miles north of the Dead Sea. Established the headquarters from that time on. That was the military headquarters of Joshua and Israel at Gilgal. That's chapter 2 to 4. Then third, we begin the conquest proper. That takes about seven years, and that's chapter 5 to 12. And that's what's on the board, isn't it? And there's three, uh, there's, first of all, the preparation for the three campaigns. Then the three campaigns, a central campaign, divide and conquer, central campaign. Then a southern campaign, and then a northern campaign. Now, Joshua didn't conquer every city, didn't intend to conquer every city. What he did was two things. Number one, <clears throat> he conquered the strategic cities of the land. Number two, he destroyed the military capability of the Canaanites. Then he said, 
to the Israelites near the end of his life. Now, I've conquered with you the strategic cities and destroyed their military capability. Now, it's up to you to finish out the mopping up operations and conquer all the rest of the land and I'm going to apportion it to the tribes, which he did, and you drive out the Canaanites and destroy them and make no alliances with them, which they did, and which ultimately destroyed them spiritually and for which they were scattered and have been scattered for the last 2,500 years since the fall of Jerusalem 586 B.C., the theocracy of Israel stopped in 586 B.C., never has been established since that day. Will someday. Someday it will. God will establish his theocracy with the last Adam, with its headquarters at Jerusalem. But for the last 2,500 years, no national entity always under the heel of some foreign power. Why? Primarily because they disobeyed God and intermarried with pagan tribes and mixed with the pagan tribes. God warned them against that again and again and again and again, just as he warns us against intermarriage with unbelievers and with against alliances with unbelievers. Just as God says, come ye out from among them, and be ye separate. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And it led to their ultimate devastation. Conquest, 5 to 12. Then, after they conquered the land, number on the other side, the division. The division of that land among the 12 tribes. That's 13 to 22. And then, number 5, the final charges of Joshua and his death. And that's 23 and 24. Now that's all on that outline, is it not? Is that all in the outline? All right, that's all in the outline. I knew it was. I just wanted to see you look down there, see if it was. <laughs> all right, now, what we, we've taken up the preparation. I intend to get through chapter 4 last time, but didn't. So we're going to cover all of this up to the death of Joshua or until somebody here dies, one of the two things. We're going to get through this by 7.30. So we got 45 minutes to cover the rest of the conquest period. And you know all that we're going to be able to do is just to touch the high point. And I hope that this will, I hope that what you do is two things. I hope that before you come to class that you read what we're going to study. Then I hope that when we finish the class, that tonight or tomorrow, while hopefully it's still fresh in your mind, you'll go home and read over with this outline in mind. Read over it once again. That's the secret of learning. Repetition. Repetition is the secret of learning. Repetition. So I hope that when we finish with this, you'll not simply close the book, but go on home and study it follow it through, and, you know, take some simple steps. What do you mean simple steps? Well, 
When I had to take my doctoral degree, uh, my oral examination for doctor's degree, I had to master two major Greek grammar texts. I'd have a hard time now doing anything with the Greek. I've kind of left that, but I had to do it at that time. And I took both those texts and outlined them each in a notebook. Then after I finished that, I took that outline and outlined that outline in a smaller notebook. And then when I did that, I outlined that second outline in a smaller book that I could hook up put in a pocket, see? And I didn't have a car at that time. I rode the buses when I went to work. <clears throat> and I carried that around, and then I took that out, studied it on the buses, or studied when I had some vacant time. I hate to hear people say, well, I've got an hour to kill. You know, that's really a terrible thing. I got an hour to kill. I got an hour to kill. My goodness, the most precious thing we've got, and the men that are older here know this, that the most valuable thing you've got is time. A lot of things you can get back. You wreck a car, you can get another car, see. You split a pair of pants, you can get another pair of pants. Or you can go on a diet, one of the two, see. But you can't get time back, and that's valuable. So use it well. One way is to go over these things. You know, I am, I don't want to use this time, but I am distressed that people sit in churches for 20 or 25 years, and you ask them to give you the books of the Bible, 25 years in church, and they can't give you the books of the Bible. 25 years in the church, and they can't tell you the general history of the Old Testament. 25 years in the church, and they can't give you the general, general outline of the life of Christ, 25 years in the church, and if a man came up to them and said, how can I be saved? I want to be a Christian. They'd be hard-pressed to tell that person how to be a Christian. Now, if you had an insurance agency, you wouldn't let a man work for you a week, one week, that did that poorly. And yet here we're dealing with eternal things, and we don't nail them down. Why is it? Well, I don't know why it is. I've tried to struggle with that problem for 20 years. Uh, it could be that we don't make it clear sometimes in the pulpit. But I don't buy that proposition. I think also it's because people tend to put their mind on the shelf when they come to church. Don't use it. So that's why I've tried to teach my children when they're at church to take notes of what's being preached, to take notes, see. Even though they throw the notes away later, to take notes. And I've got one boy who has notes for the last four or five years of Mr. Stevens' sermon and of Jimmy Latimer's sermon. And I've looked at his notes, and I can say uh, gently that some of those notes I know are better than the notes that were carried in the pulpit. See, because... Uh, uh, my boy Jamie takes real good notes. Now, you know the value of that? The value of that is while he's writing it down here, he's writing it up there. That's the value of it, see? While writing down here, writing up there. And when you get through with notes, then the thing to do is to go over it again and go over it again so that it fixes it in your mind and you can recall it later on. All right, now, if we don't get along, we won't get through to 8.30.
so we're going to have to move. Five great events in the book of Joshua. Number one, preparation. The call and commission of Joshua, that's found in Joshua chapter 1. We looked at that last week. God clearly put his stamp of approval on Joshua as the next leader. Matter of fact, before Moses died, Moses got all the people together and said, Joshua is going to be the next leader. Want you to listen to him. That's a good thing. Good thing that God did that and Moses did that. All right, now number two. Now that they're on the, on the plains of Moab, which is just east of the Jordan River. Here's the Jordan, just east, the plains of Moab. You can look across the plains of Moab, which is about 1,300 feet below sea level. Look across Jordan, and there looming high is the ancient city of Jericho, perhaps the most ancient city in civilization that we, that we now have. Their cross was Jericho. And here they were over the plains of Moab. Moses is dead. The two and a half tribes have their allotment. New leaders have been raised up and approved, Joshua. And the people are now ready to first cross over into the land and establish a new headquarters, Gilgal. Second, conquer the land. Third, divide the land. And that's the responsibility God gives to Joshua. Gives to Joshua the responsibility to guide them in first invading the land, chapters 2, 3, and 4. Secondly, conquering the land, chapters 5 to 12. And third, dividing up the land among the 12 tribes, chapters 13 to 22. Then when that's finished, when that's over, let's say 15, 18 years, when that's finished, then Joshua gives his final charges to the nation, warns them against disobedience and against intermarriage with the pagans. And then in the last five verses, we read of Joshua's death, and they bury him. So let's look now at the second thing, the invasion of Canaan, chapter 2, 3, and 4. Two events take place. First of all, the spies are sent across, the, they're not yet across the river, and two spies are sent across the river to spy out Jericho. That's given to us in Joshua chapter 2. You recall that story, I don't need to review it. Two spies are sent over. Are sent over. So at nighttime they cross the Jordan River, and there looms up about eight or ten miles, there looms up the city of Jericho. Jericho, great strategic city. It lay, Jericho lay on the routes, the routes, the major routes into Palestine. Well fortified. A city that goes back to about 7,000 B.C. A city that's been built on several times. And we're not sure what level it was at the time of Joshua and the Israelites. So the two spies went over to Jericho got into the city, got into the city, and uh, we're looking over the city, and a harlot, a prostitute by the name of Rahab, whose house was, they built houses in walls, and there were the double wall around the city, a prostitute by the name of Rahab had heard about what God was doing to Israel. Matter of fact, all the people had heard what God was doing, uh, doing to Israel. They'd heard about the greatness of God, and they should 
have repented, but they did not. But God worked a miracle of grace in the heart of Rahab, and she was saved. So, when the two spies knew they were going to be discovered, Rahab hid them in her house. The soldiers came to her house and said, are they here? And Rahab said, no. Now, that's been a long problem of whether Joshua did, uh, Rahab did the right thing or the wrong thing. I'm not going to settle that at this point. No, no, she said, not here. So they left. And, and she said, when I know that God has given to you the city. And the book of Hebrews, the book of James, commends her faith in God. She was a saved woman who gave up, obviously, her former, uh, her former profession, prostitution. God saved her. And she said, be kind to me when you come in. And the two spies said, when we come in, if you will let down a red string from, on the, from the wall, from your house, built into the wall, you let down a red string, a red rope, we'll watch for it. We won't destroy your family if they stay in the house. And when they entered and conquered Joshua, Rahab and her family were spared by putting out that red string. Do I need to point out the type? Do I? That we are saved by that red line that runs through the Bible, the blood of Jesus Christ. So the spies went out, but instead of going east, they went west, hid out at nighttime, and then slipped back across and told Joshua how to go about attacking the city. So the second thing they did in invading the land, second thing they did was to cross the Jordan River. And uh, they, they crossed it. Uh, and the story is told in Joshua chapter 3 and 4, the crossing of the Jordan River. God first gave them instructions. First of all, he said, if you look up here, he said, first the priests are to go ahead. The priests are to go ahead. And they're to carry the ark, and the ark is to go. The, the, wa uh, the, the river Jordan was at flood stage at this time. Sometimes this is explained by saying that an earthquake took place up at a city called Adam, 20 miles north, and it dammed up the river and didn't flow for several hours. Now, that happened about 75 years ago. But at this time, the river was at flood stage. So the people couldn't cross it except the two spies who knew how to swim across. It was a flood stage. There it was. So the priests went down, and they had the ark. The ark. The ark was always in the front. The ark representing Christ at the leadership. And they took that ark, and they put their feet into the water, and as soon as they put their feet in the water, that water stopped, and a great bank of water held up, just like a dam on the Tennessee River. That water was walled up, walled up probably for five miles, five, six, seven miles, and then the people crossed while the priests stood in the center of the Jordan River. All the people crossed, the river Jordan, except the wives and children of the two and a half tribes. They crossed the Jordan River. Then after they crossed the Jordan River and the priests were still in the center, Joshua said, I want you to get two groups of stones. And uh, I want you to take the first group of stones, 12 stones, 
representing 12 tribes, take those stones and take them over to Gilgal where we're going to stop the night and put those 12 stones up there in a memorial like a triangle, a pyramid. Then, said Joshua, I want you to take 12 stones from Gilgal, take 12 stones out of the Jordan River and bring those over and put them at Gilgal, five miles west of the river. Then, take 12 stones from Gilgal back to the River Jordan and put them right in the center of the River Jordan where the priests are. Why? Why, they said. Well, he said, so that when you pass away, you die, your grandchildren come along. They say, what are these stones your grandchildren can say to their children and to their children, this is where God supernaturally worked for us and saved us. Just as God has given to us the Lord's Supper, to visibly remind us of that great event when Jesus died for us. So God had to put the stones. See, God always accommodates himself. God doesn't need visible things. But you do, and I do. That's why we got clocks and watches, see? We need visible things. So God has given to us two visible ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism, the initiatory rite to remind us of our union with Christ and the Lord's Supper to remind us of the death of Christ and our constant need to feed upon Christ the bread of life through our Christian life. So they put the two stones, one in Jordan, one here to serve as memorial. And then the priest came out, and when the priest got out, all that great wall of water came shooting on down once again down into the Dead Sea. Was it a miracle? Yes, it was a miracle. Have any problems with miracles? I have no problem with miracles at all. See, The problem with miracles is not the problem of miracles, it's the problem of God. Now a Bible-believing Christian understands that and strange as it may seem, a committed atheist understands it also. It's the modern religious liberal that has the trouble with miracles. See, a man like John Stuart Mill, who was a committed atheist, who I, I've read some of John Stuart Mill's, probably the, the, the uh, most uh, intellectual, uh, the most intellectual and perceptive argument against the existence of God were written by John Stuart Mill. Had an IQ, I guess, about 150, 560. Brilliant man. Economics, philosophy, several areas. And John Stuart Mill said that his daddy used to take him out on long walks when he was 9, 10, 11, 12 years. His father's name was James Mill. Take him out long walks, and he said his daddy would talk to him about the non-existence of God. And by the time the boy was 14, he was a committed intellectual atheist. He knew why he didn't believe in God. He wrote what are called the three essays on religion. And they are uh, probably the best, the best uh, arguments against the existence of God. But John Stuart Mill said one time, once grant the existence of a personal 
sovereign God, then miracles are explicable and to be expected. Let me say that again. John Stuart Mill said, once Grant, I'm not quoting him verbatim, but almost verbatim. John Stuart Mill said, once Grant the existence of a personal, that is a God who has a will, can exercise a will, once Grant the existence of a personal, sovereign, a God who can do whatever he wants to do, once Grant the existence of a personal, sovereign God, then miracles are explicable and to be expected. Why are they to be expected? Well, miracles are abnormal, but our world is abnormal. Sin has made our world abnormal. And since sin is abnormal, and since sin has made you and this world abnormal, God, therefore, works abnormally from time to time in the way of miracles. So, said John Stuart Mill, if you believe in God, there's no problem with miracles. We see, I believe in God. Therefore, I don't have any problem with miracles. God expects us to believe the miraculous. God does not expect us to believe the ludicrous. I hear every once in a while some preachers say if God said that Jonah swallowed the whale, I'd believe it. Well, I wouldn't, see. The Bible doesn't expect us to believe the ludicrous. It does expect us to believe the miraculous. So they crossed the river. God dammed up the river, and they crossed it. And then when the priest came out, it stopped. And then they went to Gilgal and erected that monument. All right, two things. First, the call of Joshua. Number two, the invasion of the land. They've crossed the River Jordan, and they've established their military headquarters at Gilgal. Number three, number three. Now we come, number three, to the conquest of the land, the conquest of Canaan. God commanded them to conquer the land and to destroy all the inhabitants. So the conquest of the land is, uh, it takes about seven years. The conquest of the land is prosecuted in three great major campaigns. The headquarters is at Gilgal, and the first place is Jericho. And uh, <coughs> Joshua prosecuted this campaign in three great, uh, the conquest in three great campaigns. First, the central campaign, which divided the land. Well, you say, who was in the land? Well, the Canaanite tribes. In the land of Canaan were the Canaanite tribes. The Canaanite tribes are composed of a, of a, a, a large group. You read them, seven or eight, nine different tribes. They're generally called Canaanites. Canaanites. The Hurrians, the Horites, the Jebusites. The Jebusites settled in Jerusalem. Jerusalem at one time was called Jebus. And there were seven or eight of these tribes. Now, uh, Jerry, uh, Joshua and the Israelite conquered them by three major campaigns. First, a central campaign in which he conquered the two strategic cities of Joshua, of Jericho, and Ai. The central campaign which divided the land. The central campaign. 
And that's, John, that's chapter 6 through 9. Then, secondly, he had the southern campaign. And he moved on down and conquered the major cities in the south. And it was during that time that God supernaturally intervened and destroyed the enemy by two things. First, by hailstones, and secondly, by that long day of Joshua. Then the third campaign was the campaign up here. It was a league, league up here, and they formed a league. And Joshua made a night march up the Jordan Valley, and in a surprise attack, attacked this league. The head man was the king Jabin of Hazor, and attacked that league and conquered these cities. Now, I think what we need to understand is that we didn't have in this territory what we've got, 48 or 50 states with governors. What they had was what is called city-states, just as they had in Greece. They had city-states, and they conquered 31 city-states west of the Jordan. That's given to us in Joshua chapter 12. 31 city-states. At the head of each city-state was a king. We would call him today a mayor. But he had a lot more authority than our mayor has. He was called a king. And by some people, he was regarded as a form of divinity. He was a king. So they had 31 kings that they conquered and 31 city-states in this. And they did it in three campaigns. Now, now, Joshua 5 to 12, there are three movements, just as I have it on the board. Three movements. First of all, Joshua chapter 5, there's a preparation for the campaign. Secondly, in Joshua 6, 1 through 11, 15, there are the three campaigns. And third, the conquest is summarized, Joshua 11, 16 to chapter 12, verse 24. Now, let's look at these. Three camps, first of all, there's the, there's the preparation. That's given to us in Joshua chapter 5, preparation. And this took place at Gilgal. What did they do? Well, they did four things. Before they could conquer the enemy, they had to be right with God. God had given to them a covenant sign. What was that covenant sign? Circumcision. But for 40 years, nobody had been circumcised. God also gave them a feast to observe. For 40 years, they had to observe it, Passover. So four things took place at Gilgal to prepare them spiritually for the campaign. Number one, number one, they circumcised all the male children and all the men who hadn't been circumcised for 40 years, for 40 years, for 40 years they hadn't circumcised. What happened to Jesus at the age of eight days? He was circumcised. Being a loyal Jewish parent, he was circumcised. That was the sign of the covenant placed on the organ of propagation because God made promises to the seed, the physical, dash, spiritual seed of Abraham to give them a people forever and a land forever. If it wasn't to the physical, dash, spiritual seed, he wouldn't give them a physical sign. He gave them a physical sign, not to you as a Gentile, but to the Jew, the sign of circumcision. 
Why circumcision on the male organ? Why? Because God promised to Abraham's physical, spiritual seed. Physical hyphen spiritual seed. God promised a nation forever and a land forever, see? And God will someday fulfill that promise to that physical dash spiritual seed of Abraham. So they circumcised him. Number two, verses 10 and 11, chapter 5, they reinstituted the Passover. On the radio recently, I've been uh, dealing with the three great uh, um, events of the Exodus. The Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the sanctification of the firstborn. All three are typical of three experiences of the Christian life, beautiful types of our Christian life. Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, sanctification of the firstborn. So they reinstituted the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Third thing that happened in, jo in Joshua chapter 5, and I hope you listen to this one. Up for 40 years, God had fed them with something. What was that something with which God fed them? The manna. And the manna ceased when they got inside the land. And from now on, they eat what the Bible calls the old corn of the land. I've eaten some of that around some restaurants. <laughs> but that's what they call it, the old corn of the land. That's real description. The manna ceased. The manna ceased. And they ate the old corn of the land. The supernatural manna came down every day, ceased, and they ate the old corn of the land. Natural, see? Just as after the apostolic age, the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit ceased, and we now eat from the old corn of the Word of God, which is completed and finished. So they feasted on the old corn of the land. And then they did one other thing, one other thing, which slips my mind right now. <laughs> In Joshua chapter 5, 13 to 15, first the circumcision, then the Passover, then the old corn of the land, and what's the fourth thing they did in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. Let me see that. It slips my mind right now. Oh, yes, right, right. 13 to 15. I'd like to spend the rest of the time here, but I can't. Joshua, I want you to look up here. Joshua went out one night to reconnoiter the land. And uh, he uh, was um, at Gilgal, and he uh, went out at night and walked about the eight, seven or eight miles and stood outside Jericho. There he is, nighttime, the moon dimly shining. There's Jericho. That's the first great obstacle. No doubt he was saying, how can we possibly conquer Jericho? That's impossible. Two great walls around it. How shall we conquer? While he was standing there looking at the city at nighttime, suddenly, suddenly, a great captain, a great soldier, an 
nine or ten feet tall perhaps, appeared before Joshua. Joshua started, and he said, Who art thou? Who art thou? Art thou, are you for us? Are you for them? And the soldier said, That's not the question. The question is not, Am I for you, or, or, or am I for you, or for them? The question is, are you for me, or for them? The question is, Joshua, are you for us? And that soldier who was the Lord Jesus said, that's not the question. The question is, are you for me? Do you know what he was saying? You all listening? What he was saying to Joshua is, your problem, Joshua, is not Jericho, but Jesus. What's your problem? Not Jericho, but Jesus. What's your problem? The people at work? No, Jesus. What's your problem? Home problems? Yes, but that's not the real one. The deep problem is Jesus. Jesus, not Jericho. And once Joshua got right with Jesus and bowed and said, Lord, I'm your servant. I'm your servant. Whatever you say, I'll do. Then Joshua was ready to go into the land and conquer it. You know what your problem is? You know what mine is? You know what mine is? Jesus, not Jericho. Jesus, not Jericho. Preparation. All right, now the three campaigns. The three campaigns. Three campaigns. First, the central campaign. Second, the southern campaign. Third, a northern campaign. First, the central campaign. And the three events in the central campaign. Three events. First one is Jericho, and, and we're all familiar with the, with the conquest of Jericho. God said to them something very, apparently very foolish. Just as the Bible says that it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them. So God used a foolish thing. God said to Joshua, you get the Israelites and get them to walk around the city seven times. On the seventh day, he had them walk around seven times on the seventh day, break the pitch and shout, and the walls will fall. Now, that looked absolutely foolish, wouldn't it? Now, Alexander Haig wouldn't buy that one, would he? <laughs> that looked absolutely foolish. Uh, but God told Joshua to do this. So Joshua and the Israelites already, that soldier at night said, and you for me, see, he established you as a real captain. Joshua said, you are the real captain. All right, here's what I order. Surround the city and circle it seven times, once each day, seven days. On the seventh day, seven times, shout, the walls will fall down. So they did it. First day, second day, third day, Fourth day, about the fifth day, they really feeling foolish, you know. <laughs> sixth day, seventh day, here they are walking around that city. How big was it? Anywhere from 15 to 30 acres. 
our land is six acres, anywhere from 15 to 30 acres, seven times on the seventh day. <coughs> and when they came to the seventh time, they shouted, shouted. When they shouted, <coughs> those great walls supernaturally fell in. Fell in. Miracle. No earthquake, just fell in. And then the Israelites moved on in and destroyed the city and destroyed, as God commanded, destroyed the population except one person, Rahab, and her family. Joshua warned, don't lose, don't lose, don't take anything, don't take anything. Though Jericho, the great strategic city, is now conquered. Next is a little place called Ai, a small village. So they go up to Ai, but they make a mistake. And they go up to Ai in the first campaign, they're defeated. Uh, embarrassingly defeated. Embarrassingly defeated. And they're embarrassingly defeated for two reasons. Two reasons. And they're both told us in Joshua chapter 7. The first reason is because there's sin in the camp. Somebody has looted Jericho and disobeyed God. The second reason they are defeated is because, chapter 7, verse 3, they're overconfident. We whipped Jericho, big city. This little city is no trouble for us, see, AI. Overconfident. So they went up against AI, and they were thoroughly trounced. They came back with their tails between their legs. So Joshua said to them, all right, let's deal with this. There's a sin in the camp. Somebody's disobeyed God and looted the camp. So they took, took it by the tribes. It came down to one tribe. Went down the clan. They narrowed it down to a clan. Took down the clans that narrowed it down to a family. And about that time, a man stepped forward by the name of Achan. And Achan had taken something that God had forbidden. He looted. So Joshua said, take the man and his family outside and stone them to death. Now Joshua didn't say that. God said that. God dealt severely, just as he did with Ananias and Sapphira. Now there are a lot of people after that that looted, but God didn't destroy them. And there are a lot of people in the church that have lied, but God hasn't struck them dead. He did Ananias and Sapphira. Matter of fact, most of us, if not all of us, would be dead if God did that. Why did he do it then? Because God was at the very beginning of Israel's national history, at the very beginning of, of history of the church, you listening? God was pointing out that his idea was holiness for his people. Be ye holy as I am holy. And that God cannot bless an unholy people. So they destroyed Achan and his family. Then they went up against Ai the second time. And this time they prayed about it. And this time they went up against a larger force. And this time they defeated and burned Ai to the ground. Then when they were finished with that, they went up to a place called Shechem which lies between two mountains, 
Ebal and Gerizim. And there they had an antiphonal choir. There Moses read the law, divided the tribes in two sides. Moses read the law, and one part from Gerizim responded one way, and the other from Ebal responded uh, antiphonally to what Moses was reading. And there they reconfirmed their commitment to God. And the central strategic cities of Canaan were now conquered. Ai, Jericho, Shechem. Now follows the southern campaign. The southern campaign. The southern campaign. They came on back to Gilgal, the headquarters. And uh, Joshua got ready for the southern campaign. While he was getting ready for the southern campaign, group of people came in to see Joshua, asked him for an audience. They came in. They had old, old baggy clothes. Look, they had been traveling for several hundreds of miles. Their clothes were all moth-eaten. And they had some bread. And the bread they had was all, uh, all spoiled bread. The food they had was all spoiled. And they brought them on in. They came into brought Joshua and he said, who are you? He said, well, we're a group of people from hundreds of miles away. We traveled for days and days and days to reach you. We've heard about you. We've heard about your God. We know that God is for you, and we want to make an alliance with you. Won't hurt you. We live hundreds of miles away. Won't hurt you. So without praying, the Bible says didn't pray about it, and openly disobedient to God who said, don't make any alliances, Joshua said, all right, we'll make an alliance with you. A NATO alliance, a league with you. We'll make an alliance with you. Made the alliance. And after Joshua made the alliance, lo and behold, he discovered that these were Gibeonites from Gibeon, which lies down about here. I would say 30 or 35, maybe 40 miles away down at Gibeon. And now they're committed to protect them. Well, when, when five great city-states down here and five great kings, five great kings of five city-states heard what Gibeon had done in making that alliance, see, Gibeon was kind of like Poland is today. And when they found out what Gibeon had done, these five kings formed an alliance. And they said, we're going to go up and punish Gibeon, Gibeon for making that alliance, and we're going to fight against Joshua. So they got together an army and began to march on Gibeon, which is located about here, about between those two areas. And the Gibeonites sent a delegation down to Gilgal to Joshua, and said, Joshua, the kings are marching against us, and you recall you signed a NATO treaty or whatever it is with us. You're obligated to protect us, so get on down here and protect us. So what did anything Joshua do? He had already signed it. He committed himself. He saw now how foolish it was. So they marched on, Joshua did, made a quick march from Gilgal down toward Gibeon, down to a place called Beth Horon, which is in the valley of Ajalon. 
And they began to fight against those five kings, the armies of those five city-states. The battle went on for several hours, and the armies were both tired. God intervened. Once he intervened, sent great hailstones, and the great hailstones killed more. The great hailstones killed more than the battlefield. But still there were hundreds and thousands of soldiers left. And Joshua's soldiers are getting tired. And Joshua knew, Joshua knew the sun was setting. Joshua knew if night came and the enemy was allowed to retreat and to regroup and to refresh themselves and come back, Joshua knew that his troops were no match for them and they'd be defeated. So Joshua cried to God and said, Oh God, give us more time. And God gave them several more hours of life. Sun, stand thou still. Moon, stand thou still. And God gave them more light. Now that's the miracle. How do we explain it? How to explain the miracle? Well, um, some men explain it by saying that what God sent was not light but darkness. That's hardness of the earth. Other men say this is poetic and we're not expected to take it literally. Most, uh, virtually all Bible believers take it literally that God did exactly what he said. Now the question is, uh, how did God do that? How did God do that? And uh, in answer to that question, among Bible believers, there are a whole lot of different views. Four or five major views on how God gave them that extra life. Velikovsky, Velikovsky wrote a book about 20, 25 years ago in which he proposed the idea that some comets came close to the world at that time and caused a slowing in the rotation of the world. But you see, that's a naturalistic explanation. And Christians ought not to buy naturalistic explanations. Another view is that uh, proposed in the Sunday School Times back in 42 is that God caused all the volcanoes, kind of like the principle of jet propulsion. <laughs> all the volcanoes explode, and they all explode exploded in the same direction, see, and had slowed the rotation of the world. Others say that God simply stopped the rotation of the world. Others say that God didn't stop the rotation of the world, didn't do it by volcanic pressure, that God simply extended the refraction or the extension of light for another three or four hours miraculously. God created light in Genesis 1. He could extend the light. And I tend to believe that. I tend to believe that when God performs a miracle, he performs it locally unless it's said like the flood is worldwide. When darkness came at the death of Jesus, that darkness did not fall in Greece and in Rome. That three-hour darkness only covered that land of Judea, see. When God stopped the clock for Hezekiah, that was a local miracle. So 
when God stopped the sun and extended the light, I believe that was a miracle. But I believe it was a local miracle that God extended the refraction or the extension of that light for another three or four hours, caused it to keep lit up, caused it to light. How? I don't know. By a miracle. He caused it to remain light in that area. Why did he do it? So that Joshua and the armies could go out and complete the conquest and the devastation of those armies. And they did. They did. And then when that was over, the next day, they went down to all the cities in the south part, and they invaded those strategic cities, and they burned them to the ground and destroyed the inhabitants. Then Joshua retreated back to Gilgal. That's the southern campaign. Third, the northern campaign. Joshua got news that five kings up in the north had formed a league and were going to move against him to resist the conquest of land. So Joshua made a quick night march up the Jordan Valley and caught them by surprise up near Lake Hula called Merah in the book of Joshua, Lake Hula. And there conquered the five kings and there destroyed the five cities, and there put them under tribute. And in these three campaigns now, Joshua uh, and the Israelites have invaded the land and conquered the land. Now, that's all summarized. If you'll turn to Joshua chapter 11 in your Bible. Joshua chapter 11. That's all summarized in Joshua chapter 11. Let's take our Bibles quickly. Joshua chapter Joshua chapter 11 verse 16 to Joshua chapter 12 verse 24. That whole camp, those three campaigns are summarized. Verse 16, Joshua 11. So Joshua took all the land of the hills and all the Negev, the land of Goshen, the Shephelah, the Arabah, the Mount Israel, the Valley of the Saints, all the way up to Mount Lebanon. Now, what he means, if you look here, is that Joshua took all this land, this is the negative, the south land, all the way up to Mount Lebanon. He conquered all this land. Now, he didn't conquer every city. He conquered all the strategic cities. And he destroyed their military capacity of their army. Expected the, other, the 12 tribes then to move out and finish the mopping up operations. But he conquered all that land described Joshua 11 and 12. Now, let's take five minutes and finish this. So you won't have to come back. We've got, so far, preparation, invasion, conquest, 5 to 12. Now, let's finish this. Take about five minutes and finish this. And then we'll be through with the conquest. What we have here, number four, number five, is the division of the land, chapters 13 to 22, and the final charges and death of Joshua. First, the division of the land. And there are three divisions of the land. Three, three sections. Chapters 13 and 14. Now they, they've conquered all the land, and now they're going to divide the land among the 12 tribes. So, here's the division of the land. And uh, he divides it uh, into... Uh, 
division, if I can find the, uh, if I can find them, and I can, hopefully. All right? <clears throat> but let's look at the board here. Here's the division. First of all, the special allotment. Special allotment. There's an introduction. Then he reviews the land that's given already to the two and a half tribes already under Moses on the east side of Jordan. That is the land of Reuben and Gad and Manasseh, the three tribes on the east side of Jordan. And then third, Joshua chapter 14, he gives one city, Hebron, one mountain, to that man, Caleb. Caleb. How does Caleb? <laughs> well, he's over 100 years old. Caleb said, I don't wear any glasses. My eyes are not dim. My, I still get in the wrestling ring and take on any man. And he's over 100 years old. So he said, give me the toughest spot to conquer. Give me the hardest job. All right, we'll give you Hebron. So he went up and Caleb took Hebron. Special allotment. Number two, the major allotment. Number two, the major allotment. And there are four of those. First of all, in, in, in Joshua chapter 15, he gives the allotment to Judah. There it is on the map. Down in the south part, Judah. And there's Hebron right in the center of it. He gave it to Judah, the allotment to Judah. Then secondly, he gives the allotment to the sons of Joseph, that is, to Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, Manasseh already had half a land over here. He gave another half of the land to Manasseh over here, and he gave this land to Ephraim. See, the sons of Joseph got large sections of land. So the second division of the land was in Joshua chapter 16 and 17, to the two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. Third, third, he divides it to the seven tribes, the seven remaining tribes. That's Joshua 18 and 19. Now take your Bible, look very quickly 